So the coach is in class, and tonight we're going to speak about building businesses during a technical recession. And I'm going to read something that he wrote only a week and a half ago. Our economy is in the midst of a technical recession, and business owners are wondering how to weather this economic storm. What does it take for a business to stay afloat in these trying times? The answer, he says, is simple. Resilience, curiosity, and determination. Well, Pablo Fatidis, right here in studio to talk about resilience, curiosity, and determination. Pablo, good to see you again. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. And hello to all your listeners. The only reason I call you here is because I always believe you are the only person, every time I listen to the stuff you say, who can debunk the myths of, no, it's not worth it. I don't like it when people say it's not worth it, especially business people when they say that. And I know a lot of people are sitting there because last week they sold less than they could sell. They signed fewer clients that they, they normally signed and they started to think maybe it's not worth it. You know, Rams, it's been so interesting because not so long ago, the president of the United States called our country a... Yes, asshole. An asshole. Yeah. And then, not so long ago, expropriation without compensation came into the media. The discussion began. Everyone said it's going to harm inward investment. And in the midst of us being called an asshole, and in the midst of all the negativity around inward investment, one of the businesses I worked with was outright acquired for a premium price by a small medium American company saying that their future lies in Africa. Wow. And if it weren't for this, the way that this business built itself, if it weren't for the way it promoted itself, this business would never have come into the sight, into, onto the radar of the small medium American business. And the only reason that they're there is because of curiosity around who they can partner with. Yeah. A determination that nothing, including the recession, is going to interfere with their opportunities and an absolute, absolute resilience by being consistent in doing what they do and doing it simply and doing it well and being the best at it. So those words certainly have paid off in real money for that particular business. In the midst of when everyone says, all the experts and pundits have said, it's impossible to succeed in this economy. They have. I, I can imagine a lot of people listening to us now and saying, but Pavlo, I've, I've been supplying bread to this community over the years or these many shops over the years. Mm. They're buying less now. The reality is that I cannot afford my business anymore. What, what are the things that they should look at? So resilience means that you can withstand turbulence, right? Yeah. You, you have, you're going to, you know... Building a business is like sailing a boat. We're sailing in a storm. Mm. The wind's blowing from one direction, then it's the next direction. Those directions are either comments that politicians make. It's the Rand dollar moving up and down. It's companies like Steinhoff going under, but they went under because of fraud. They never went under for any other reason. Yeah. Comments that are being made towards South Africa affecting inward investment or outward investment. So we're sailing in a storm. The first thing that I always argue is if you have a product and you're building your business around a product, you will not survive the storm. Because the way to become resilient 
is to understand what problem you solve and for who. And I refer to that as specialization. So, for example, the conversation we were having outside. Yeah. You take the very simple fire extinguisher. A fire extinguisher that you sell to a mine is very different to the fire extinguisher that you would sell to a chemical plant, which is very difficult to the fire extinguisher you sell to a house yeah. or for a car or for a hotel. All of those different customers, for want of a better expression, experience different problems with fire. Mm. And if you learn and understand what problem you're solving with the fire extinguisher you're offering, it helps you then speak to that customer as a solution provider rather than a product provider. So, for example, to the home, I would argue when I sell a fire extinguisher to you, the problem I'm solving is that this fire extinguisher is usable by anyone from the age of seven years of age upward. Yeah. That's relevant in a home. Yes. That's not relevant in a mine. In a mine, this fire extinguisher is usable deep underground in low oxygen environments with little ventilation. In a hospital environment, there's a different problem you're solving. In a chemical plant, yeah. this fire extinguisher is, is usable in any kind of chemical fires that you might have. As opposed to, hi, I sell fire extinguishers. Do you want to buy my fire extinguisher? So, Rams, the first thing is, everyone has a product behind them. Mm. But don't sell a product. Solve a problem. Because if you solve a problem, and the economy changes, and the wind blows from one direction and then the next, and I really understand you, you will say to me, Pablo, that problem you were solving for me is changing. And as I learn and understand that what worked a year ago now works differently today, and I can change the way I serve you today using the same fire extinguisher, you're going to stick with me the whole way through. So resilience firstly means you solve problems, you don't push products. Because in reality, Pablo, is that as a buyer, as a customer, recession or not, if there is a problem that I have, I will always want to buy the solution, irrespective of the, uh, the, the, the economy. I may battle to buy as much as I used to buy or as often as I used to buy, but I still need the, the fire extinguisher. It's a perfect example. So I still need the fire extinguisher, but instead of me buying from you once a year, I might have to buy four times a year because that's when we've got budgets. Yeah. So if you think about it, the fire extinguisher is just the product. But if I'm close to you, Rams, and I've really understood what your challenge is, and I help you get access to the product that you need in your hotel, and I simply then organize to supply you every quarter instead of once a year, by definition, I'm solving a problem for you. The second thing you said there, you never ever buy anything that doesn't solve a problem. Yes. And it doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are. You only spend money on things that solve problems. And I'll give you a great example. I worked with a business yeah. that sold very, very expensive watches. The watches were around 350,000 Rand apiece. It's a business in the north of Johannesburg. It's a second generation business. It's famous for its watches. Yeah. And they've got all the big brands. And this business owner came to me about three years ago and said, this economy, the Rand dollar, you know, I'm taking real strain. And I said to him, well, what problem do you solve? 
And he said, I don't solve problems. I'm in the luxury market. He said, there's no such thing as a luxury market. So we did some work with him. And you know what we discovered? Expensive watches solve four problems. The first problem, well, who buys a 500,000 rand watch? Not me, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> Not me. <laughs> but typically somebody who might want to send a message to the world that they've arrived. Yes. Someone who feels that they want to demonstrate their status. So someone who might not be that secure in themselves, someone who has a low self-esteem, maybe. Mm. That's problem one. The second person who buys a very expensive watch is someone who's laundering money. I buy the watch today because it's a good brand, because it's expensive, it holds its value, I can sell the watch tomorrow. The third person who buys an expensive watch is someone who wants to take money out the country. I buy the watch, I put it on my wrist, I arrive wherever I am, I sell it when I'm there. And 5% of people who buy very expensive watches are genuine, genuine collectors. Yes. When he understood that those are the four problems he solves, someone walks into his store, he asks one question, and in the way that that person answers the question, he knows which one of the four problems that customer needs solved. So when he shows the watch, let's say you've got low self-esteem, mm. and he shows you this limited edition Rolex 500,000 Rand watch. As he shows you the watch, he says, you know, Prince Harry recently bought one of these watches. He's appealing to your sense of celebrity and importance. Yes. If you are a money launderer, he says, you know, these watches are incredible. This watch you're buying from me today, I'll buy back from you tomorrow. Any other collector would buy back from you tomorrow for the same price. Can you hear the message is yes. different? Yes, yes. If it's the collector... He would say, you know, Rams, I only got three of these watches. They are genuinely a limited edition. And they fall in line with the Blue Oyster range, or whatever the case might be, of Rolex watches dating back to 1903. The way that he identifies your problem and connects with you is different for the exact same product. And when he identifies and connects with you and you feel heard and understood, you trust. And when you trust, you buy. In other words, you support them. That's key to sustaining in a recession because it doesn't change. In the coaching class, Pablo, Pablo Fatidis, I'm, I'm laughing because my next question is very fascinating to me before it fascinates you. He's CEO of Oric Investments. You may want to join us in this conversation because you're going through a tough time. You want to quit. You, you've you've uh, dusted off that CV and think, maybe I should just get a job because this is not working. Well, I think you must speak to Pavlo first before you give up and let's see whether we can help you. It's a simple question I want to ask because I heard it from what you just spoke. How critical is it for us to understand our client? It's the only, it's the entire job of a business owner. And you know, it, it starts to become quite interesting, Rams, because the first decision you've got to make is who is your client? Let's go back to the fire extinguisher example. Your client is not everybody who needs a fire extinguisher. You know, when you try and be everything to everybody, you become nothing to anybody. And the moment you play in that game, the moment you are 
attempting to sell your fire extinguisher to anybody without an understanding of them, the only way you get a deal done there is if you sell on price. And when you sell on price with no margin and no gross profit, that's not a business. You're creating a job for yourself and you're going to live from hand to mouth. So a true, true entrepreneur, the first thing they do is when you start a business, you sell to everybody and you look to see who starts to buy from you again. And then you look to give them some character. <clears throat> Excuse me. You discriminate. You can say, for example, the people who are buying from me are men in their 40s and they are running auto repair shops. Yeah. Okay. So that's where I obviously have a good pitch. That's the, the environment where people understand me best. It's the environment where I seem to resonate strongly. I'm going to deepen my expertise in understanding men who are running auto repair shops. And I'm going to understand what kinds of uh, fire extinguishers they need, how often they need to be serviced, the kinds of problems that I solve for them. That is the real, real job of a business owner. When you have understood that, and you've really understood that, the product you used to have is probably not the right product. You then start to find a product that's more appropriate for the customer, that customer, that customer and their specific needs. Because if you change your product or your service to suit them in the way they want to be served and how they want to be served, by definition, Rams, they're always going to stick with you. And that's what separates you from every other person selling fire extinguishers. That's where you begin with the business. And it takes about three years to get that right. In a lot of what you write about, Pablo, you refer to trust. Does it come from the consistency of your service to your client? Does it come from the relationship, human relations between client and supplier? Or does it come from the fact that they can trust you, if, and it sounds wrong, but can I trust you, therefore I can trust you? It's, no, it's not, it's not about trust. Trust is really genuinely earned. Because, honestly, you should trust everyone, but trust them through the way they behave and what they do, rather than what they say and what they promise. So anyone who's got a few years behind them in business is going to say, yes, 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 I hear your story. But don't tell me you love me. Buy me the flowers. Buying the flowers says, I love you. I'm looking for the behavior. And I'd like to talk a little bit about a hmm. fascinating entrepreneur that I've worked with, a guy called Siswa Chabalala, who went into the cleaning space. And now let's see how he got there. He got there because through enterprise and supply development, through the BE codes, one of the easiest places for a black business owner to start a business is in the cleaning sector. A lot of corporates are happy to outsource cleaning. They outsource it because really, if it works or doesn't work, we'll simply find another cleaning service. But it's not core, core, core to our business. Yeah. And Cesbe found himself in a situation where the only work he could get was to clean offices. And he cleaned them incredibly well, diligently, every single day. The quality of service that he offered was impeccable. And with that, people noticed the difference from the previous cleaning company to Siswe. When cleaners didn't arrive on time for his jobs, 
he was there himself. If he couldn't be there, members of his family were there. They saw that this guy was absolutely committed to offering a quality of service that kept that relationship. With time, and because he was in the environment of these officers, these officers were linked to a factory. He said to them, I've noticed the standard of cleaning in the factory is not nearly as good as the standard of cleaning that I offer in the offices. Why don't you give me a go? Just give me a small portion of the factory. Let me try it out. Because they trusted him, based on the fact that for over a year and a half, he had never been late, the standard of quality was always at an excellent level, he was consistent, he was reliable, he was affordable, they gave him a small piece of the factory. And Rams? Today he owns that entire factory's cleaning bill. And not only that, when he started to clean this factory, he realized that cleaning has no margin in it. And he thought, I'm cleaning the surfaces, but people are breathing in all these fumes. He then started to bring in a new service to clean the air Mm. for workers in the factory to breathe in better quality air. He extended cleaning from surfaces to air. And when he cleans the air and he cleans the dust, he sucks all the minerals out of the air and he sells those minerals into the commodity markets. So today, it's impossible to compete with Cizwe because he drops his price for cleaning because he makes his money in, let's call it the recycled dust, where he sells the lead and the copper and the zinc and everything else that comes off the factory floor. Okay, here's, here's my other concern. It, it is a recession. What is likely to happen if I, I sell a product and, and that product is made of components is that I'm likely to be, my, my costs are likely to, to increase because I'm buying from other people whose costs are, have increased. Do I come to my client and say, I have to increase my prices and this is the reason? Do I open my books and show them? That. No, you don't open your books, Ram. You compete. You compete. If I'm your client, I really don't care. If I'm buying on price and your price remains competitive and I need what you have to offer because you're solving a problem I have, I don't have any options, Ram. I've got to stick with you. Mm. But if your price is outrageously high, compared to the, the next service, which is similar to yours, you won't survive that relationship, irrespective as to what your problems are. Do I go to a new client? And this I hear a lot from small businesses who call onto this show. Do I go into a new client, and let's call that client Oric Investments, and I, I know that my service or product is worth 10 bucks. Mm -hmm. But because I want my foot in that door in these trying times, I come in at eight bucks. Is Is that something I need to do in this recession? No, I don't believe so. I don't believe you should ever sell on price. If you've understood what problem you solve for me, and you can express that problem differently, and you can demonstrate how in what you do, you can make that problem go away for me better than the current provider, I'm going to go with you. 
that's how you switch across. Mm. I think the moment you start getting into a pricing game, it's very hard to claw back up. So let's say, let's say, let's say we have a free and fair election next year. Let's say the ANC settles as a party. Um, let's say they win for argument's sake. Let's say economic reforms come into play. Let's say there's unification around building the economy. Well, who knows? But let's say. Yeah. And let's say that things start to improve dramatically in Zimbabwe. You know, Southern Africa is one of the most underinvested parts of the world today. Mm. And people in very competitive markets are looking to put their money in areas where there's going to be extensive growth. And if we settle our politics here, and Zimbabwe settles its politics, and we get some sort of activity going, I think next year we could hit 2.2-2.5% economic growth. In that environment, you then come back to me and say, Pablo, the economy is growing. I now want to increase my prices back to the standard rate plus inflation. I won't tolerate that. My next response is going to be fine. What I'm going to do is issue a tender. And he or she who comes in at the best price, because now it's a pricing discussion, is in. Whereas if you sold to me on a value proposition, in other words, you said to me, I'm buying from you because you solved my problem in the best way possible, then I'm going to trust and work with you, Rams, because if you understand me, I'm sticking with you. It's less about the product. It's less about the price. People only use price as an excuse or as a reason to say to you, you don't really understand me and therefore I'm only buying from you on price. Final question. And I'm going to speak price again, but differently, mm. Pablo. So I, you know, I've been lucky because I've been solving your problem for five years. You've been buying from me and this, this trust relationship, you know I deliver this consistency. You can believe in my work, you, you, this reliability. And uh, I then get to a point where Pablo says to me, Rams, we're going through a recession. We love what you do. We love your work. Uh, but somebody just came in undercutting you. And, and you know, my bosses are looking at that. If I said to you, I'm willing to meet them at that price to keep you, am I doing the right thing? If I'm still making a profit? If you're still making a profit, then I would say the way I would do it, I'd say, so Ram, someone has just come in, they're undercutting you. There's pressure from my bosses to perform over here. I don't know what to do. Their price is, their price is 55 Rand. Your price is sitting at 62 Rand. If I can offer value at 55 Rand, in other words, I can sell to you at 55 Rand, I'm going to begin my negotiation. And I'm going to say to you, okay, so Rams, look, a large part of what determines my price is the Rand dollar. Mm. The Rand dollar is currently sitting at about 14.07, wherever it is. The moment it goes back down, I'm holding my price. Can you agree to that? That's one approach. Mm. My next approach is, right, Rams, I'll meet them, but I'm increasing my price by inflation in February each year, and you sign a three-year exclusive contract with me. You know me. You trust me. I'm meeting the price. This is what's in it for you. Give me something to work towards. So you negotiate. You don't just simply say yes. 
The third thing I'm going to do, Rams, is if you put that argument to me, I'm going to find out if it's really the case. I'm going to find out if it's really the case. I'll know if I'm in my market and, I'm, and I've developed an expertise in fire extinguishers, the longer I stay with fire extinguishers, the deeper I get into the fire extinguisher market, I'll know whether what you're saying is accurate or not. Mm. And when you find out that it was not accurate, what happens? Well, then you know you were had. You know you were had. You simply do the business over there and you move on to a client that's going to have a better chemistry with you. I don't think you should do business with people who don't fit well with your ethics, your values. It's not sustainable. And in that environment, you're going to be constantly abused. The only time you do it is when you have to. But the moment you don't have to, the next stage of growth often comes when a business owner can turn around and say no to a client. Because that means that they've built their business in a different direction from that client and they've got substantial business in that space. Saying no is one of the hardest things for an entrepreneur. Trust me, I struggle with it still today. There's one or two people listening to us, and I hope it's 1,000 or 100,000 people listening to us and saying, I'm hearing this man, and I think this guy can help me. I know, Pavlo, what you've done for a lot of businesses. And every time I speak to anybody who's willing to listen, I always tell them, go to experts to help you build your business. And I want them to come to you. How do they get to you? Rams, the best way is for them to go through the website which you can find at www.auric.co.za. Yeah. And people say to me, what does auric mean? Yes, actually. What is so, do you remember at school? Remember, did you do chemistry at school? Yes, I to, did for my sins. Yeah, and you yeah. had to learn the periodic table. Yes. And do you remember the symbol for gold? Yes, AU. AU? Yes. So auric is A-U-R-I-K. And auric means, it's a chemical term, it means the mixing of three things together to create value. And because we were born in Egoli, and this is where we originate from, yeah. it's the city of gold. AU is value. We combine three things. People, ideas, and most importantly, action to create value. And that's what Auric means. Excellent. All the details are on our Facebook page as we speak. Oric Investment Holdings. Pablo Fatidis has been our coach. And please, I'm, I'm asking you, if you want to grow your business, go to Oric. He will, he will make you, except he's going to make you work. It's not going to be some holiday. You're going to work for it. Pablo, always wonderful having you here. Thank you so much for having me. Great stuff. And we will actually also share some of your writings on our Facebook page so that people see the kind of stuff you write as long as you don't write two-page paragraphs. <laughs> You're more than welcome to. <laughs>